This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Film Spotting listeners, including Carlos in Chambly, Georgia, Peter R., and a platinum level donor, Josh David in Pennington, New Jersey, sent us a check, and he had in the memo field a whole nother donation. Oh, makes it extra special, David. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of our listeners who donated, whether you were one-time donors or a monthly subscriber. You really do keep us doing what we're doing. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I'll be you, Katharina Bridge, you filthy ingrates. You people, who would I know for the benevolent Wilford would have frozen solid 18 years ago today? the indelible Tilda Swinton in Bong Joon-ho's 2013 film Snowpiercer. In that one, Bong imagined a high-speed train circling a frozen globe, its passengers engaged in some violent class warfare. In the director's latest, Parasite, Bong again explores tensions between the haves and the have-nots. Parasite won the Palme d'Or at this year's Cannes Film Festival and has earned some of the best reviews of the year. This week on the show, we've got a review. Plus, we forget the train and take the bus for 2014's The Midnight After, the second movie in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. All aboard, it's Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We've been reviewing Bong Joon-ho's films here on the show since 2006. His monster movie, The Host, was our first experience with the director's work, which combines genre filmmaking with social commentary and often comedy, sometimes a little horror thrown in as well. I was looking back, Josh, at my Snowpiercer notes just prior to coming into the studio, and it turns out The Host reviewed with the original co-host on the show, now our producer, Sam. The next Bong film we saw and talked about, Mother with Maddie. Then you came in to talk about Snowpiercer. So we're now into two films from Bong where we don't have a new film spotting host. So I think that says something promising about our future. Yes, we're committed, I guess. Okja, Okja, we both did? Were we both on that show I don't know if we were both on that show. I can't remember either, but Okja, I try not to think about very much. Not because I didn't... (laughs) necessarily like it. It's just so disturbing. Yeah, it really is. And you do get that with Bong on occasion. Not reviewed here on the show, but a movie I definitely recommend, 2003's Memories of Murder from Bong Joon-ho. His latest film, Parasite, just made it to Chicago last weekend, and we are going to talk about it here in a second. But we do also want to mention that we're going to talk about the second film in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon, Fruit Chan's The Midnight After, comes to us from Hong Kong. And it's another one that likes to mix all these different cinematic styles together. It's a blend of science fiction, mystery, and comedy, and probably seven other words that we could throw out. It came out in 2014 and was made in the wake of some major political protests in Hong Kong. And here we are in 2019, protesters again on the streets of Hong Kong. We will see how all of that does or doesn't influence our experience with the film. But first, our review of Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. I want to start, Adam, by jumping back to the aforementioned Snowpiercer. In that Bong film, Tilda Swinton looks out at the scraggly lower-class citizens who live in the steerage section of that title train and tells them, you suffer from the misplaced optimism of the doomed. Now, as we mentioned, Parasite also has class issues on its mind, 
The movie opens on a struggling but scrappy South Korean family. We've got out-of-work father, played by Song Kang-ho, the star of a handful of other Bong films, and a mother, played by Jang Hai-jin, as well as a brother and sister, played by Choi Woo-shik and Park So-dam. They're probably those characters in their teens or early 20s, mm-hmm. I would say. Now, from their semi-basement apartment, the Kim family watches at street level, the world pass them by, if not drunkenly piss on their building. They're not in the best neighborhood. When the son happens into a tutoring job with an obscenely rich family, the Kims see an opportunity. With a few white lies and some scheming, they try to find ways each of them can be of service to the parks. Lee Sun-kyun is Mr. Park and Cho Yo-jong is the missus. Now, for a while, things seem to be working for all parties involved. But we do have the creeping sensation, Adam, that the lower-class Kims might also be suffering from the misplaced optimism of the doomed. The class critique in Snowpiercer had all the subtlety of an axe fight, appropriately. Mm -hmm. Parasite isn't quite that blunt, but I don't think you could say it's subtle either. Hatchets are also involved at one point. Given all that, Adam, did you find that Bong's new film had anything significantly different to say about class? Or... Is he highlighting income inequality just in a very different sort of setting here? Well, I'm going to bow out of your question a little bit, Josh, because one, I would need to rewatch Snowpiercer to probably truly thoughtfully address that question. And I would need a little bit more time with Parasite. This is a still processing review. We just both came from that screening. But to that question of the commentary about class, As we said, it's really been a part of all of his films, all the ones that I've seen anyway, not just in Snowpiercer, but going back to The Host, going back to Mother. There are elements of it in Memories of Murder as well. And I think the genius of Bong has always been not so much what he's trying to say, but how he says it. The new and inventive ways he's been able to tell what really is one of the oldest stories, one of the oldest conflicts that goes back to the very beginning of civilization. I agree with you completely that this movie may be seems to be a little bit more subtle than Snowpiercer. It definitely doesn't have the camp element that you get, particularly with that Tilda Swinton character. But before we really get into how Bong explores the issue of class here and really what makes him so special as a filmmaker, just a general comment, having just come out of it, we both really didn't know anything about this movie. We knew basically at minimum that it had something to do with class, and we did expect that. But otherwise had no real idea, even picking up all these comments, all these raves coming out of film festivals and all these tweets and letterbox comments about it, we'd managed to not really have anything spoiled for us. This movie was a surprise from start to finish for me. But when you're seeing all these people that we really do trust and our tastes even align with just rave about this movie, you go into it expecting transcendence, not just smart and really well-made or entertaining and a little bit provocative. No, it's got to be borderline sublime. And despite those high expectations, Bong Joon-ho absolutely nails it here, at least for me. When it starts, the movie I was equating it to wasn't Snowpiercer, but actually one of the best films of last year from Hirokazu Koreeda, Shoplifters, (laughs) because that's a movie that opens just like this movie does with a family falling on hard times. They're out of work. They 
are scamming to survive. And that's what we get here. And then we remember or were reminded fairly quickly in this movie that this is a Bong film and that he would sooner cut the heart out of the movie and show it to you than actually give you a lot of heart. And there is a satirical element to this movie. It's absolutely incisive when it comes to class distinctions. It doesn't pull any punches about showing how loathsome almost everyone in the film can be. And we're going to be very vague here because we want all of you to have the same unspoiled experience we just did. But then without resorting really to any sentimentality or conventionality, he also manages to make virtually all of those same loathsome people tragic, or at least tragic in their own unique ways. And they talk about classical Hollywood cinema, the Lubitsch touch. How about the bong touch? I'm going to give you a moment without giving away any of the significant details that comes, I think, about three quarters of the way through the movie. And at this point, I've already been swooning over the camera movement, the composition, the lighting, the occasional use of slow motion that just seems so perfect, the score, which I think is wonderful here, sometimes light and sweeping, very orchestral, and then it gets progressively more haunting and unhinged just as the story does. And then you get this moment that does three things all at once. And every Bong Joon-ho film manages to give you at least one moment like this or the totality of the film does this to you. It's a moment where you laugh out loud, followed immediately by recoiling in horror. And not horror movie horror, real genuine shock at something terrible that just happened to someone and the crassness, the absolute indecency on the part of the person who committed the act, all while being in awe of how it unfolded, the cinematic dance of it, the actual Mm -hmm. choreography of camera and actors and editing. And the thing is, I know you know exactly what moment I'm talking about. Can I just ask, does it involve a kick? It does. Okay. (laughs) Yes, maybe benefits that you were two seats away from me and we had we had the same reaction. reaction. I mean, did you not go through that same yeah. sequence of thought? And, you know, it, and you're you're hinting at this as well. But part of that whole package you described is also the understanding of why the act took place. Yes. And being on the side of the person who committed it a little bit. Just as much as you're yeah. on the other end. Yeah, exactly. Which yes. gets to what you're saying about how he handles all these characters. Uh, shoplifters definitely came to mind for me. Of course, a Japanese family there in that uh, Hirokazu Koreeda film. But really, the filmmaker I kept thinking of here and has not occurred to me in other Bong films was Yorgos Lanthimos. Mm. Uh, this is... Tone. Tone. But yeah. yeah, like Parasite to me is like shoplifters um, deranged brother no one speaks of and he, it's, he's kept in the basement. You're right. That's what Parasite and, is. And that's fitting for this <laughs> yes, movie too. Yes. Uh, this is the dark side of Shoplifters. It uh, could very well be Yorgos Lanthimos' film in the way it is unblinking about how dark humanity can get. But also, as you were just describing, uses humor, not the way horror or dark comedy sometimes does to lighten things, Mm -hmm. but to drive that point home, kind of twist the knife, um, doesn't offer us release through a funny moment, but implicates us in the humor as well, which is what happens in that sequence that you're talking about. Uh, So yeah, as far as the the class question for me, as I was thinking about that, um, you're right. this This is a conflict that has been explored forever in all sorts of art. The interesting thing for me compared to Snowpiercer in particular is how much more bitter this one is. It feels like to me. It's, yeah. it's acidic a little bit, even though it also has a lot of humor to it. Because and I think, isn't it, Josh, that you're on the side of 
one of the groups in Snowpiercer. Yeah. And here, that allegiance I think definitely that's part shifts. Of it. That's part of it. So there's – and that has to do with one of the ways this movie is more subtle. But also I think that bitterness is due to the fact that, you know, the, the income inequality gap has only gotten bigger in the couple of years um, since Snowpiercer came mm-hmm. out. So to revisit – in a sense, you're revisiting these questions in a very different time, even though it's a couple of years later. And so that bitterness that this movie is steeped in, I do feel is appropriate and, and why it did remind me in mm-hmm. a lot of ways of of Alanthimos film. And you highlighted one moment that was so perfect. Let me bring up another one that I also think doesn't spoil something. But a recurring motif throughout this movie is that there are comments made here and there by either one of the park kids. Mm-hmm. There's a teen daughter, high school daughter, we should say, and then a young son, about third grade or so, um, or even one of the parks, Mr. or Mrs., where they reference a certain smell yes. that Mr. Kim has in particular, but they also, I think the little boy notices it on Mrs. Kim as right, well. that they smelled the same. And this, at first, this is, when this first happens, it's kind of an awkward touch, like, oh, the, the parks feel weird that their boy pointed that out. Um, and the Kims respond to it as, oh, we have to, they're basically not they don't want the parks to know yeah. that they're a family. It could give them up. It we could think give them that away. as viewers, we yes. think that's what's going to undo them. Yes, that it's just <laughs> How a little we know at that point. But exactly. But it does, it gets repeated and they revisit it yes. and it becomes this increasing source of shame for Mr. Kim in particular. And here is where I mentioned how Song Kang-ho has been in other Bong films and his performance is always, he, he manages to capture that same ability to mix tones that Bong's films do just in his performance. Mm-hmm. So it's no wonder they work together a lot. But here's where we see him as this scheming clown, but also a very sad man when he realizes his status in society. Yeah. And this reference to the smell, there's one moment, it may be the fourth time that it comes up, but Mrs. Park, he is working as their driver, we should say. Mrs. Park is in the back seat. And she and her husband have discussed this, um, and Mr. Kim has overheard them discussing mm-hmm. this smell. And they compare it to that smell you have in the subway. And so Mr. Kim is driving her. It's just the two of them in the car. Her bare feet, she's on the phone with someone else. Her bare feet are up on the headrest, the front seat headrest. So they're right by Mr. Kim's face. Just incredibly rude no matter what your class status. Yes. But he just sits in the seat and endures it. That's his position as their driver. But then he notices in the mirror that she's starting to hold her nose mm-hmm. and rolls down her window. And it's just that double insult of her sticking her potentially smelly feet in his face and then him seeing her act like he's offending her. And so there are a lot of little touches like that throughout this film that uh, are pointed yes. and visually driven, but also make you not quite sure whose side you're going to be on as yeah. this unfolds. There's no doubt that something we see recur in this film again and again is – the rich people, the rich family, never letting the help forget their place. And they're not even doing it maliciously. It's just their instinct. That's just how they behave. And so we get some moments and we realize these are out of context here, but like the one where the father is auditioning for Mr. Park, he's driving the car the first time and Bong just really neatly cuts to the coffee cup Mm -hmm. a few times where you recognize that even though they're having a great conversation and that the boss in this case seems to be taken with his skills and and that he seems to be this veteran driver that he proclaims to be, 
Nevertheless, as soon as that coffee spills a little bit or if he takes a corner a little bit too rough, mm-hmm. he's probably not going to get the job. Yeah. So despite what connection they're making, and we see it again more pointedly in a sequence not too long after that one, where now it's Mr. Kim with the wife. And what he's saying to her is a total fabrication, but they are really – they seem to be bonding in this moment. They are both – part of this kind of moment of of horror about this fear that could be lurking in their home and he's brought it to her attention and just when you think they maybe have made that connection mm-hmm. there's a little bit of intimacy between them he touches her and she says you washed your hands yeah, right yeah. and it just completely then in that moment deflates everything and brings him back to who he is and then I will not get into the circumstances of this line but at the end there's a key moment where just as really that shame is at its apex for Mr. Kim, the husband reminds him that you're getting paid for yes. this. They're always reminding them that you're you're the help. You're getting paid for this. And so just do what you're told, basically. When the, yes. When the niceties are not working anymore, that's when Mr. Park will say, remember, you are getting yeah, paid. Yeah, we own you. He also says at another point, what he likes about Mr. Kim as a driver is he never crosses the, the line. line comes close. Doesn't quite define what the line is. Yes. But I think it's exactly what you're talking about. It's becoming too intimate yes. in a way that will upset the balance, the class balance that everything exists right. upon. And there's a recurring line in the film, too, that's kind of a funny joke, which is it's so metaphorical. And yeah. really, that <laughs> that crosses the line bit is metaphorical in its own way, because, of course, these are imaginary class lines and distinctions anyway. And he likes them. You're absolutely right. Just as long as he doesn't cross it. Can we just talk about maybe some images that don't give anything sure. away, perhaps, but are you're going to remember from this film? You've talked about the lighting, and maybe here's where we can mention the Park House, which is this amazing I want to. piece of architecture. There's an entire wall that's glass that looks out on this pristine lawn that the parks have, and then some trees behind, very distinct from the crowded, dingy streets that we otherwise see. This could this could be a contender. We already did top five movie houses on yeah. film spotting, oh, man. but this would be a contender for it because it plays a crucial role in in the plot as well. But an image is when they're sitting watching this lightning storm and looking out on their lawn mm-hmm. and their little son, the park's little son, has erected this teepee. He's demanded, he's obsessed with Native Americans and he's demanded for his birthday he wants to go camping and be in this teepee. And the way Bong lights the teepee itself with a flashlight. It looks like the kid's flashlight. It's glowing in the yard and the rest of the house is dark. And it's just emphasizing the ludicrousness of um, what they will go, what the parks will go to, the lengths they'll go to, to give their son what they want. Yeah. I think a lot, there's as much blame on not just having the money, but how you use it in For this sure. film. And particularly with the young boy in indulging him in everything he wants. So that tent is one image. Another image, let's just say the the boy claims to have seen a ghost mm-hmm. a few years earlier, and we get sort of a flashback of his memory of that. Holy cow. I yeah, mean, this is not a horror movie, no. but I, I, that's going to go up there. That image of is what— It's scary, and we even, we even know it's coming. We, know we have put the puzzle pieces together exactly. before the viewers yes. have, and yet still seeing it happen yeah. does kind of take your breath away yeah. a little bit. I'm really glad you brought up the house and you brought up that window because, of course, not a surprise if you've been a regular listener of the show, the element of this movie for me that stood out the most was the element of performance and the way every single person, I mean, obviously, they're kind of scamming this family, right? They are mm-hmm. pretending to be something they aren't. Okay, that's on one level. But Everybody 
is doing that exact same thing. Nobody here really is who they say they are, even down to at the very beginning of the film when we meet the family and we see that they're putting together pizza boxes yeah. for some kind of two-bit pizza joint and they're saying they didn't put them together well enough and they're going to dock some of their pay and they have this whole argument. And the mother actually, Mrs. Kim, calls out the girl from the pizza company when she says, this is hurting our brand. You know, So even this this just mediocre pizza joint, mm-hmm. fast food pizza joint is elevating themselves, is projecting themselves to the world to be some kind of gourmet restaurant that they really aren't. And I think when you really break it down, what you see here is the way the son, who the rich couple calls Kevin, the way he really becomes a screenwriter, or if you will, he becomes a playwright. At one point, he's scripting the dialogue that each member of his family is going to have with the parks. And he knows, just because he has a good enough understanding of human nature, he knows how this is all going to play out. He's coaching his father on the tone of his yep, performance. They're rehearsing. Right? They are rehearsing just like they were actually rehearsing a play. And then I would go so far as to say there's a moment I love. I think I can say things start to unravel when the parks leave for the weekend. We'll just say that. The parks leave at one point. And we see the moment where Mrs. Kim is standing there smiling as they pull out of the garage. And as the garage door closes, Mm -hmm. we recognize as soon as that garage gets past her face, then the real Mrs. Kim is going to come out. It's the curtain going down, right? It's the curtain going down as the garage goes down. And that, that... amazing, immaculate, rectangular glass space, the living room looking out onto that lawn is the proscenium. It becomes the stage where this symbiotic, tragic comedy plays out and we get to witness it on that stage. There's even an element of fantasy and performance in The Rich Couple we see later yeah, in a, in a really key kind of awkward moment. But we see even for that family, there's an element of a fantasy and performance in their relationship and In that moment, they project themselves to be completely unlike who they really are, just like the poorer people project themselves to be, obviously, richer. So they really do just take on kind of each other's behavior, we see as the movie goes on. So the way we've been talking about it, it maybe sounds like it's pretty easy to side with the Kims, who are just trying to put together this existence living off these Mm -hmm. far wealthier people. And what's so bad about that? Um, Well, here's where... The title of the film comes into play for me when you think about Parasite is when there is there's no it's not really symbiotic, right? There's it's you're just taking. Yes. And there are a few moments in this film where we see that the Kims I'm treading lightly here Mm -hmm. um, have opportunities to not just take from the parks. Correct. And um, it's interesting to me, the daughter of the Kims, again, played by Park Sodam, has a line at one point she says to her father when he's he's thinking about maybe helping someone out, let's say, she says, just focus on us. Yes. And it becomes... Uh, it's not even survivalist. At that point, it's more of like a parasite mentality. It's like all we're going to do is what we have to do to survive. Everyone else be damned, even if, and here's the key, even if it's someone else who is in an equally disadvantaged position as us. Yes. And so it really looks at, you know, 
only looking out for yourself is a human flaw. Yes. It's not necessarily a class yeah, flaw. That's and where the, the Lanthimos comes in. The yes, cynicism yes. comes in. And the, the brilliance of the movie is being able to juggle all of that, not making this just about hoping that the parks get what's coming to them right. or anything as simple as that. Yeah. No. And I will point out, though, as you mentioned that line from the daughter, that is a scene where she's highly inebriated. And I think that Bong complicates things by giving us a moment later where after a lot of bad stuff has gone down and some people have suffered, let's say that she's the first one in the family to ask a question that suggests she's actually thinking about what happened to those people. She's the first one in the family. So at least it tells you that maybe that wasn't her true nature or at least when when she's faced with another moment like that, she does reveal herself to be a little bit more benevolent. But there's no doubt that I think the the title Parasite here takes on a little bit of irony, perhaps. And absolutely, you were first watching this film to go back to Snowpiercer, thinking of the haves as the villains Mm -hmm. of this movie. At some point, you have to ask the question, even before you really have any sense of what may or may not happen to them, and you don't, right? I mean, this movie takes you... you, No, you can't guess. The movie (laughs) takes you on its own ride, which is why even as maybe as specific as it sounds like we're being, we're not really being at all. But at some point, pretty early in the film... I was asking myself the question over and over again, do they deserve it? Mm-hmm. Do they deserve what may be coming to them? Does anybody in this film deserve what's coming to them? And the answer is, yeah, they all kind of do, and they all kind of don't. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. that's, that's really the beauty of this film. Obviously, sounds like we are both pretty positive about Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, and we don't often necessarily get into spoiler territory, but... There is at least one thing about the end of this film I did want to bring up, and maybe there's a couple things you want to touch on, Josh. So let's go ahead and stop the review proper. If you have not seen Parasite yet, this is the point to stop the review and get out to the theater as fast as you can. If you have seen it and you want to get into a little bit of spoiler talk, Josh, we're going to begin that right now. Now, what do you want to spoil? Well, go ahead. You said you wanted to bring up the climax. Yeah, which, I really which thought. You're, you're probably going to say also takes place on that stage, on the lawn. Absolutely, it does. Right? And yeah. we're even, I think when we begin to see it, um, it's from the balcony, an upstairs bedroom where the son you go. is watching out the window and asks the teen daughter. So the son of the Kims asks the Park's teen daughter, if he belongs out there on the lawn where this birthday, impromptu birthday party um, is taking place and everything has converged. Like every, what's so brilliant about that happening is everyone's motivations for what they do has been perfectly set up to that point where Mr. Kim, the driver has been pushed beyond Mm -hmm. what, what he is willing to do, even if he's getting We're not surprised by a single thing in that moment because it does come out of character at that point. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This isn't a spoiler part, but I do want to say, and I'm sorry I'm going to take a shot at your beloved Joker, but it really is just to highlight how much I love this film. Let's have no more talk of Joker's descent into the streets of New York City down those stairs because Bong Joon-ho totally outdoes Todd Phillips in this film. In that moment, I guess this is spoiler (laughs) talk so I can get into it. When they finally scurry out of that house before the big finale, the violent finale, when they finally get out of the house and the three family members who have to leave, like cockroaches, really they are in that moment, they scurry out from under the table, they get out the door, and Bong gives us this incredible series of about four or five shots as they 
descend truly into the city, just always going down. Metropolis-like levels of going down into a city. It all, it's not science fiction at all, and yet it almost takes that on just because of the the absolute scale of it, them descending down into the subway. It's another world, and I really did love that Yeah, it's a brilliant montage. I mean, no need to slight Joker. I think Joker still stands up on its own. I had to. So let's get to the moment at the end that really just had me I was going to say in awe, but I was in awe already, and this just was the the cherry on top. It's that moment where, and we joked about the line, things being so metaphorical. Mm -hmm. That comes into play when we start to piece together the ongoing fascination the sun has with Native Americans, Mm -hmm. right? And as we're talking about a certain class of people truly taking advantage of another group of people, exploiting them taking everything from them. Of course, we think about the genocide of Native Americans. And in that moment where a performance is about to happen, another performance, the mom, Mrs. Park, has staged this whole scenario. She's now the director, and she's choreographed a scene where her husband and the driver, Mr. Kim, have put on Native American headdresses, and they are going to fake that they're going to attack Mr. Kim's own daughter, but they don't know that at that point, as she brings the cake out fake to the boy. It's going to be a yeah. fake attack. Yeah. And what we get instead is a real attack. Yes. <laughs> and not only is it a real attack, someone who really has a basement knife, dwelling. the vengeful basement dwelling other husband in this whole bizarre scenario. And because of how he's been mistreated up to this point over the past 24 to 48 hours. The bloody face. The bloody the face, face that paint. brings him up in red face, yes. playing the role of the Native American, yeah. actually attacking the girl. That's the moment where you really get the truly, I mean, devious isn't even a strong enough word for how hilarious and at the same time awful that is. And that's that's Bong's genius right there. Should we just go with bonkers? I mean, it's, it's bonkers. Just, yeah, I, it's, I hope it's someone lovely. is listening. It's lovely and horrible. <laughs> I hope someone's listening to this who hasn't seen the movie because they can't even conceive no, it of how wouldn't this really makes sense there. We're not really spoiling it, are we? But it gets there very horrifically logically. And there's another touch going back to that. This motif about the smell is what finally sets Mr. Kim off is when at this point. There's basically – I'm just going to simplify it. Mr. Park needs a set of keys that are underneath a body that has been stabbed and is bleeding. And he turns the body over and the smell of, I'm assuming, the blood or something, he puts his fingers to his nose to cover and he pulls a face like he – and looking across the lawn at him, Mr. Kim sees this and that's the trigger for him. It's like the last time he's going to have it put in his mind that he is a lower class person related right. to this smell. And that's when he goes after. And that, that's yep. what I mean about like it's logical. It's motivated by their characters. <laughs> in a movie that's totally otherwise kind of irrational, it's totally rational yeah. and logical. Yeah. It really is. All right. Parasite, that's going to wrap up the review. If you have seen the movie and you agree or disagree with our takes, please do email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Up next, we have a new film spotting poll tied to Martin Scorsese's upcoming The Irishman. Then we turn from Korea to Hong Kong for the second film in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon, The Midnight After. Stay with us.
estás aquí? Tengo que hablar contigo. 32 años me ha costado reconciliarme con esta película. Si no escribes ni rueda. That's from the trailer for the new film from Pedro Almodóvar, Pain and Glory. Longtime Almodóvar collaborator Antonio Banderas, the star of that one. In the film, Banderas plays an aging filmmaker looking back on his life. And at this year's Cannes Film Festival, where Parasite won the Palme d'Or, Banderas was the winner of the Best Actor Prize. He's not the only Almodovar collaborator to appear in this one. Penelope Cruz also stars along with Cecilia Roth and Josh. Not only are you still processing Parasite, but you've been a busy boy today. Right before Parasite, you caught up with Pain and Glory. We're not expecting any miracles here. Just tell us if it's yeah, good or not. Really, that's about all you're going to get. I'm yeah. still processing while I'm still processing. Basically, the the screenings lined up so that as the credits were rolling on Pain and Glory, I pretty much raced to the next theater to start Parasite. Great afternoon. Both yeah. are amazing films, okay. like well, that's top good to 10 hear. contender films. So I'm happy to have had this chore before me. Probably Banderas is a great place to start. His performance is phenomenal. I will just point one brief moment where he is talking to a former lover. Um, his character is talking, this director is talking to a former lover. He hasn't seen him. I think it's like 30 years, something like that. Um, and he's listening to this man talk about the family he has had since. And just the, the tears starting to come in his eyes and Banderas's eyes that he manages to then push back and tamp down. Now, you know, we're used to seeing actors bring out the tears as a, like a punctuation point, but it's the pulling them back. That's the punctuation point just so hmm. he can get out of his mouth this question do you have a partner now? Which is you can tell is is all he wants to know in this moment and might offer the healing from what he was just experiencing. It's just a tiny little uh, detail, but the film is full of such moments like that from Banderas. Um, I think, you know, this is quieter than a lot of the Almodovar films I've seen, very introspective, very ruminative, but it still has the production design and costume design and color scheme to keep you buoyant throughout it. Um, it has uh, wonderful memory scenes of when the Banderas character is a child remembering his mother, played by Penelope Cruz, who is, of course, just transcendent in um, these brief scenes she has. And, yeah, for someone who, you know, I'm I'm not the most enthused always about films that are about the art of filmmaking. I can be a little skeptical about them. Elmodovar, I think he's proven that he's going to do this in his own way throughout his career. This isn't the first time he's thought about what movies mean to him. Mm -hmm. And uh, he just manages to bring such a personal touch to it and has done it again, including a meta final shot that is absolutely gorgeous that I won't spoil. So Pain and Glory, if, you know, for some reason it's getting lost for you amidst this year-end now rush of great films coming out, really find a way to see it in a theater for some of these colors and some of these um, visual schemes that he's devised and just an un another really touching story from Almodovar. Well, you had me long before Meta, but that clinched it. Can't wait to finally catch up with it. It is currently out in limited release. If you've seen it, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the film. Do you admire Antonio Banderas's performance as much as it sounds like Josh did. Next week on the show, we are considering a review. We are probably only going to be able to get to one. And the two movies that we think most warrant discussion are either Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit or Robert Eggers' 
The Lighthouse. Both films opened in limited release this weekend. Now, Josh, do you, I'm going to let you, I'm going to make you Mm -hmm. break the news to our listeners. Sometimes the practical concerns that drive our movie review choices. Why was, why was Jojo Rabbit just slightly ahead of The Lighthouse in terms of it being the movie we thought we were going to talk about next week? We're going to pull back the curtain a little bit? Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes it does come down to the release that a movie is getting and how easy it's going to be to get to. Yes. And it looks like the lighthouse may be only at the music box. Do I have that correct? Possibly. Okay. Not sure yet. Yeah. We've got to look into, that'll help us decide, I think, is just which theaters will have what and when we can get to them. Yeah. So Jojo Rabbit seemed like it was going to get a wider release, would be a little bit more accessible to us. Now, I was afraid of this. I knew the results would come out this way. I did go to Twitter about 24 hours ago, and I said, hey, if we can only review one, which one does it have to be? Something like 12, 1,300 votes in, Josh, and this was no contest. 68% of listeners, at least on Twitter, said, it's got to be The Lighthouse. I would have guessed that, but not with those numbers. Yeah. I thought it'd be closer. No, it really was a slaughter. So we have a tough decision to make. We will talk about one of those movies on next week's show. I know that the only movie I may end up getting to of all three of them is the one I can watch on my couch that also is directed by Craig Brewer, who made two films I love, Hustle and Flow and Black Snake Moan. His new one, Dolomite Is My Name, stars Eddie Murphy, and it's also coming to Netflix this weekend. So Don't, don't let Netflix win, Adam. No? Get off your ass. <laughs> I appreciate the pep talk there, Josh. Now, if you're in the Chicago area or another major city listening to this and you're thinking, man, The Lighthouse and Jojo Rabbit and Parasite. And, yeah, maybe I could make time on my couch for Dolomite is my name. You also have other films coming out that are worth seeing. And maybe you could see them in advance for free. The movie Harriet about Harriet Tubman, directed by Casey Lemons, who did Eve's Bayou, is opening on Friday, November 1st. And this coming Tuesday, October 29th, is that advanced screening in Chicago. We have passes to give away. All you have to do is go to filmspotting.net and click on events or go to filmspotting.net slash events. A quick plug for our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. The hosts there, Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. Part two of their The Man Who Laughs pairing is now out. They're going to be talking about, yes, the other movie with a great staircase sequence, Adam. Joker. <sighs> pairing Tales. that pairing that with Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Now, I haven't heard the Joker half of this I pairing yet. Tasha is going to have to, I think she does have my back on Joker, but she's going to have to make up for all of the sliding of the Dark Knight she did. Yeah, how about I mean, that? that was, it's always a trade-off with Tasha. That was rough. <laughs> so hopefully Tasha will make up for that by praising the Joker as it deserves. New episodes of The Next Picture Show, they post every Tuesday at midnight. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more info at nextpictureshow.net. Massacre Theater is the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, here's just a little bit of last week's Massacre. A taste, if you will. I'm talking about alcohol, liquor, the good stuff. All right, I've got some scotch. Single malt. Aged 18 years. The way I like it. And an extra clue from Adam there as well. So if you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is this coming Monday, the 28th, and the winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. I wasn't bubbly enough. wasn't breathy enough. Who are you? I'm Zero, sir. 
the new lobby boy. Zero, you say? Yes, sir. Well, I've never heard of you, never laid eyes on you. Who hired you? Mr. Mosher, sir. Mr. Mosher! That is the great Ray Fines with Tony Revolori in the Grand Budapest Hotel, and it's time for some poll results. A couple of weeks back, we were looking ahead to Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse, and we asked you, which complicated 2010s movie mentor would you like to see in another film? In The Lighthouse, it's Willem Dafoe teaching Robert Pattinson the ins and outs of 19th century era lighthouse keeping. The options we gave you were, in addition to Ray Fiennes as Monsieur Gustave H. in the Grand Budapest Hotel, Christoph Waltz as Dr. King Schultz in Django Unchained, Jennifer Lopez as Ramona in this year's Hustlers, Greta Gerwig as Brooke in Mistress America, Mahershala Ali as Juan in Moonlight, Jake Johnson as Peter B. Parker in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, or J.K. Simmons as Terrence Fletcher in Whiplash. Josh, how did it come out? Other came in last place with only 1%, but this really surprises me. Everyone I thought was in love with Jennifer Lopez in Hustlers, but Ramona only got 2% of the vote in this poll. Greta Gerwig received 7% as Brooke. Christoph Waltz's Dr. King Schultz got 12% of the vote. Jake Johnson's Peter B. Parker received 14%. J.K. Simmons as Terrence Fletcher received 19%. And my vote came in second place, so I feel good about that. Juan from Moonlight. And I also feel good about the winner. I can't complain about Ray Fiennes, Monsieur Gustave H, taking it with 25% of the vote. Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan says, I know that Juan is the right answer, but I have to go with Monsieur Gustave H. This poll question allows me to say out loud that because of the ways his eccentricities and flaws and pride are juxtaposed with the underused yet still existent muscles of empathy that he does have, his apology scene... What a bloody idiot I am, pathetic fool, goddamn selfish bastard. It's potentially the second most moving moment for me in a Wes Anderson film. And I'm sure I just did that justice behind, Jeff says, the spark plug adoption and Royal Tenenbaums and the sighting of the Jaguar shark in Life Aquatic. I wanted to get to see more of this stoic, selfish bastard break down and show his compassionate sides. All great moments, Jeff. Here's Dylan Dom from Lincoln, Nebraska. While Gustav H. is without question my favorite character and performance on this list, there has never been an Oscar snub worse than Ray Fiennes not getting a nomination. My vote actually went to Mahershala Ali's Juan. While I love Gustav and everything else about Grand Budapest, I felt satisfied with what we got from him and his character in that film. Whereas with Juan in Moonlight, I felt as though there was so much more to explore with that character and his story. I remember sitting in the theater watching Moonlight not long before the Oscars that year, and while I loved what he did in the film's first act, when he didn't appear in the second or third parts, I was left wanting and expecting more from a performance that was so revered. So if Juan were to appear in another film, I'd be the first one in line to see it. So you touched on that a little bit because we both actually voted for Juan. And really, I don't want to say it's a technicality because it's a great performance and deserves to be up there in contention with Ray Fiennes. But he is the one character, maybe of all the options, where you definitely feel like you don't get enough from him. Yep, right? That's so, why I went that yeah, way. So if that's the question, if you're really thinking about the character that you're desperate to see more of in another movie – there just isn't enough Juan in Moonlight. Colton Butcher in L.A. says the correct answer here is Fletcher from Whiplash. Come on. He's one of cinema's greatest characters and villains of the 2010s. J.K. Simmons gives one of my favorite performances of the decade, maybe of all time. Also, Fletcher would be able to kick anyone else's ass on this list. Yeah, I went there. Was that one of a criteria? I forget. You but. know what? I'm taking Juan. 
<laughs> I'm taking Juan against yeah. the, the jazz instructor yeah, I think who, Juan. <laughs> who talks a big game. <laughs> I think that's smart. Aaron Houter says, all love and respect to Peter B. Parker, but I could watch Terrence Fletcher destroy the youth of America for hours and hours. I never even considered a sequel, or dare I say, a series about Fletcher, but just the very idea of it gets me all excited. Thanks for putting that never-to-be-fulfilled desire in my head, fellas. So we go from Fletcher's comeuppance to... Does he become a softy over the course of the series? Do do we get some heart out oh, of no. it's J.K. Terrible. Simmons? It does, doesn't it? Christopher Jones says, the only thing I want to say is no way do I want to see more of Terrence Fletcher from Whiplash. Not because I don't like the character, but because it would ruin his power. He's like Jaws, Hannibal, or the Joker. You don't want too much of such a great antagonist. It'll ruin his mystique and his power to scare the hell out of you. Good take. Here's Albert Malafront. Terrence Fletcher would be my answer for the choices provided, but I have to go with other on this one. Perhaps it's because I watched it three times in the last week. But Sensei from The Art of Self-Defense is the mentor character I'd most want to see more of. (laughs) Alessandro Nivola does some incredible work pulling off this absurd character, delivering a hilarious deadpan and maintaining an intense and intimidating presence in every scene. He really is good. You need to catch up with that movie, Josh, because it's a legit golden brick contender this year. Brady Larson writes in, Brooke from Mistress America still has a lot of lessons and ideas for restaurants and t-shirts left to impart. (laughs) How many, as Brooke herself might exclaim, so many. Exactly. Henrik Torstadt from Stockholm, Sweden wrote in, I would love to see Tony Stark again. You know the guy from Iron Man, Avengers, Spider-Man, and Captain America. That would be something. Okay. Getting a little snarky. Moment of silence there for our friend Tony Stark. And what a great transition into this week's poll question as we're talking about the MCU. Our new poll question concerns Marvel's greatest supervillain, Martin Scorsese. And just when you think when we're out of this, right? Like we're enough of the discourse about Scorsese ripping on the Marvel movies. I'm now convinced that Marvel is actually behind all of this. They're Ooh, somehow paying these filmmakers. They're paying Scorsese because, too? Yes. because Just even, like they're paying us? They always know that the next villain has to top the one before. <laughs> and even when they don't have a movie out, they have to be dominating <laughs> film discourse because we just get past Scorsese saying that they're not cinema. The MCU films aren't cinema. Mm-hmm. And now what do we get? Coppola Coppola. comes along and says, you know what? He didn't go far (laughs) enough. They're not just not cinema. They're despicable. So it's just another villain. Who's going to come along to top Coppola? I can't wait to hear. Marvel's got it all mapped out for the next 10 years. (laughs) You know that they do. This is enthralling and fascinating. Okay, but we're going to stick with Scorsese and not my big conspiracy theory. Our new poll question is not our superhero movie cinema, as tempting as that is. And really, I now feel bad. I feel bad for our producer, Sam, that he didn't have the guts to ask that question, but instead we're looking ahead to Scorsese's The Irishman, which opens in theaters November 1st before showing up on Netflix at the end of the month. It's pretty simple. It's kind of absurd. We haven't asked this before, but we don't think we have in almost 15 years of the show. Which Martin Scorsese film is your favorite? Not the best. We are asking your favorite. Now, Sam, as he is wont to do in these poll questions, he's not just giving you maybe the most obvious choices. He also has a little bit of a system, and it just so happens that those fit together pretty well, those two ideas. Josh, they have five to pick from, plus other. What are their Martin Scorsese choices? So one per decade, essentially, is what we have here. Yeah, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, The Departed, Wolf of Wall Street, or you could go other. You could. Now, we recognize that there are other films, (sighs) other great films, that Martin Scorsese has made, but I like... Sam's approach here because 
it covers at least the three that had to be, no question it's on the a, this list. This is a good representation. Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and Goodfellas. But yeah. how many filmmakers honestly could boast, and I know you disagree with me here about The Wolf of Wall Street strongly, but could post five masterpieces over five different decades. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. And he may have another one. I, that's what I was just going to say, with word on the Irishman being incredibly strong as well. So do you have an easy choice here? It's not easy, of course, because Sam, as he did put it in the newsletter today, he went back to that old film spotting reliable, which was, you're not just picking your favorite and just tossing it out there. Your vote means all the other options are going in the incinerator. That's right. Literally every other Martin Scorsese film will be lost to time forever. And when you think about it in those terms, my vote goes from probably first Raging Bull, which I do love. Mm -hmm. And if I'm having that sort of meaningless, not substantive at all film conversation and I have to answer the question, what is his best achievement? I'd probably point to Raging Bull. Okay. But in terms of the movie, I can't live without and need to have the option of revisiting at least once a year for the end of time. It's Goodfellas. So is that how you distinguish best from favorite? I guess so, at least for the purposes of this poll. Yeah. Well, because I, yeah, I usually don't spend a lot of time trying to parse those two ideas, but I'm down to the same two films as you are. Shocking. Raging Bull and Goodfellas. Just watched Goodfellas again. And um, I, what I like about that is I feel like it represents he's done so many mob movies and so many of them so well that it almost seems like that is one of those needs to be the last remaining Scorsese film. Hmm. But I think I have a greater appreciation for Raging Bull. Okay. So I'm going to vote Raging Bull. Yeah, I can't argue with you there. I love both films. We can't wait to hear your choices and your reasoning. We will point out that in early voting, because film spotting newsletter recipients already had a chance to vote and weigh in, we've seen a fair amount of complaints about the choices. There are people who aren't as big of fans of The Departed or The Wolf of Wall Street. I know, Josh, you're all on board with bringing out the dead. Though yeah, you that probably, would be my... probably understand it may not fit into the scheme of this yeah, question. Yeah, I'm, I'm but fine with that. I think I like it more than it. most people. Um, it, it's sort of a really interesting taxi driver pairing for me. Sure. Looking at those two in tandem. But it looks like Goodfellas is in the lead yeah. at this point. Which they're complaining, make, but they're voting for Goodfellas. Voting for Goodfellas, it, it does make sense to me, and I'd be happy if that was the representative film, too. Okay. We hope you will vote now at filmspotting.net. The poll is right there on the main page, and if you leave a comment, we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. That's from the trailer for 2014's The Midnight After, directed by Fruit Chan. It's the second film in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. Last week, we reviewed John Wen's Let the Bullets Fly, which we both enjoyed quite a bit. We thought it was a good start to the marathon. Had a lot of fun going on in that film, a lot of good ideas to discuss. The Midnight After is a lot. There's just a plane a lot. Yeah, you thought that Parasite was bonkers. I think that Ooh, was your word. Yeah. This movie makes Parasite look quaint. It does. And maybe I only say that because I have a familiarity with some of Bong's other films. And the setting of that story, I could get my bearings a little bit more in Parasite. Yeah. I was a little adrift, I'll admit, with The Midnight After, which 
is part of the point of some of these more regional marathons where we're watching films from cultures, whether it's our Nordic cinema marathon Mm -hmm. or our contemporary Korean auteurs marathon or this one. Um, These might be cultures we're not as familiar with, which means we know going into it there are references we're not necessarily going to catch. And there are dots we might not be able to connect. I felt like I had more of those than in many of the other films we've done. So it's really hard to, you know, give a review of a film that way when you know that some of the things that aren't connecting are more on you than on Mm -hmm. the filmmaker. Um, But thankfully, we are getting some help with trying to process these from listeners who know – um, know these films and the culture itself uh, a lot better than we do. So Sean Gilman, Seattle-based critic, longtime listener and friend of the show, he's been curating the marathon for us and sent us some liner notes, we could say. Yeah, he did. And maybe it will shed some light for you, Josh, as we do try to frame this conversation, because to pull back the curtain again for a second, you did say in our Slack channel after watching this movie that we could tell Nathaniel, the professor, who does help us with all these recent marathons, that he could go long this week. You have no idea what to say. And I, I point this out only because literally I think in now, is this true, almost eight years of doing the show? Is that possible? Didn't you join the show in 2012? Yeah, it was 2012, yeah. Okay, well, so we're approaching right. 2020, yep. so yep. I'm doing the math here. Time has flown. But no matter how crazy the movie is, I've never once heard you say, well, I just have nothing to say about this one. I don't know. You're going to have to carry this one. You've never said that, and yet you felt that way. At least that was your glib initial reaction yeah, to which, this movie. which I put up there, I think, as the credits were rolling on the midnight after. I'm going to say I felt as adrift for some of the Louis Bunuel films okay. that we discussed in terms of the Spanish politics, the intricacies yeah. of Spanish politics. But yeah, this was a head spinner. It definitely is. And Sean says, I don't know if The Midnight After makes sense outside of the specific context of Hong Kong in 2014. It's a film that not only resists explanation, it actively resists the idea that explanations are even possible. An adaptation of an unfinished serialized web novel by an entity known only as Pizza It's about a group of people on a late-night minibus who travel through a tunnel and find themselves, apparently, maybe, as the last people on Earth. Their search for explanation leads them through a variety of adventures that ultimately lead nowhere, freely intermingling the comic with the horrific, as their society in miniature completely breaks down any time they try to create some kind of order or rationality. Sean says, for me at least, nothing explains what it feels like to be alive in the latter half of the 2010s better than this. This was director Fruit Chan's return to feature filmmaking after many years, mostly making short films. He's best known for a series of highly independent and low-budget features he made in the immediate wake of the 1997 handover when Hong Kong was transferred from British control to mainland China. Freely mixing horror and gangster genre tropes with realist portrayals of Hong Kong's poorest people, Chan's late 90s, early 2000s films, especially made in Hong Kong and The Longest Summer, remain some of the great films of the post-handover period. So Sean gives us a lot to consider there, some great background, and I think he offers a really provocative question, too, in some of his other comments. He says... He thinks it's an essential part of this marathon, if only to demonstrate the ways in which Hong Kong filmmakers still, 20 years after it all but collapsed following the handover, can push the boundaries of popular cinema in unexpected directions. And I'm going to give you one more listener comment. We do have Aaron Teachman, a longtime listener, who loves this film and defended it in great detail in an email to us and also on Twitter. And Josh, he said this, for me, Chan's inventiveness earns him some space to make the case that his incoherence is thematically relevant and intentional. Are you buying 
what both Sean and especially Aaron there are selling. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I said at the beginning, I'm not at all trying to imply that this doesn't make any sense. I'm, I'm trying to imply that I didn't catch a lot of what it was going after. No, they're so saying course, it doesn't make sense no, at all. <laughs> no, but there are but there are points they're trying to there draw There are a few in. things to latch on to. Yeah. Very it's, few. Yeah. When, when they mentioned SARS, when they mentioned Fukushima, when they mentioned the threat of North Korea, I mean, you see that these are all yeah. things that must have been in the cultural air. Um, but I guess if you're not breathing that cultural air, um, it, it, it can not quite have as much resonance. But I do understand what they're saying is that the incoherence and that sense of dislocation is part of the point. So pointlessness is part of the point. Yes. And I, when I was responding to Sean on Twitter, we were talking about this a little bit. Um, I, I said that something to the effect of, yeah, I can get that. And then once you understand that, you, you're left with how that pointlessness is contextualized, um, which is maybe where there there are some gaps. But some of the things that you know I did absolutely enjoy about it, um, I think especially in the beginning, I love this concept. And when they come out of that tunnel yes. and everything – I mean even what I do know about Hong Kong or at least what the – Things that I have seen of it, whether it's National Geographic articles or other movies, is intensely, densely populated busyness mm-hmm. um, in this this small society. And you come out of a tunnel in a movie set in Hong Kong, and for the next like twenty minutes, you don't see a soul on any of these streets in any of these buildings. It's just very eerie. And and Fu Chan frames the buildings in just the right way to give you that sense of dislocation um, that I thought was really effective. And of course, the the current, you know, protests in Hong Kong were on my mind right away as you get hints of sort of the politics when there are those references to the vote and things like that. Uh, my Sadly, my window into that right now is um, all of this talk with the NBA and its business in China and right. how a, a general manager in one tweet in support of Hong Kong protesters has set off um, this huge debate involving sports and the NBA's involvement in China. So that's in the back of my mind, too. So, yeah, there's there's a lot going on here. The, the characters on this bus, I think it's almost so populated. You do find it difficult to keep track of whose storyline is interacting yeah. how. Um, there's just a ton in this film. There is. That's definitely accurate. And it's funny, too, because I did watch this film all in one sitting, albeit maybe with one quick break. And the point I stopped the movie actually was about the 25 minute mark. And you had already chimed in and said you were kind of mystified by the movie. And I went into the movie having that on the brain. And then I get a text message from our friend Nathaniel, who brings up its incoherence as well. And I've just watched 25 minutes where this thing really couldn't seem tighter. I mean, it's it's existential speed. That's what it is. It's the movie Speed, but on a grander scale. And I was totally on board with it, and I was fully expecting to see everything just unravel in a very interesting and honestly coherent way. I really thought that we were going to see a lot of the breadcrumbs, the clues that are dropped for us. I thought they were all going to play out and prove to be crucial Mm -hmm. to understanding this film, that actually there would be some way to understand this film. And I'm thinking to myself, what are Josh and Nathaniel talking about? If you just watched the first 25 minutes, I think you would have that same reaction. I take it no one had started inexplicably melting yet. No, there was no there was no melting yet. And actually, the moment where it just started to go a little bit crazy was when 
that first masked figure shows up. That was the point I shut it off. So I kind of had okay. an inkling that, okay, things are about to get weird. Yeah. But everything up until that point— Because the student had already kind of gotten yeah, sick. But, and, yeah. but other than the general weirdness mm-hmm. of the whole concept and the fact that they go through a tunnel and come out and they're the only people alive, it seems, it did seem like it was going to be a movie— that played out maybe like a fairly conventional thriller, a sci-fi thriller, and it was going to make a lot of sense. And really does it go completely off the rails from there. And I definitely feel like it's a movie. We'll agree on this. It deliberately wants to defy deciphering. And not just to be coy, not just to mess with the audience, but to make some kind of statement. And There's lots of different statements it could be making or is making, depending on what prism you view it through. But I think it definitely is trying to say something about human nature and these political systems as well, that when something goes horribly wrong, we see in these 17 people on the bus, we see the way that they instantly seek the most convenient explanation and they search for meaning in it, which does seem to be what any of us would do in that scenario. So Right away, they go to a very spiritual place. It's something to do with God, and maybe, in fact, it's about their own mortality. Maybe they're dead. Maybe that's the explanation. And then we get another type of spiritual explanation, the woman who I love the fact that they call her the sorceress Mm -hmm. because she just starts spouting all this mumbo-jumbo. She looks for answers to the cosmos. It's, it's astrological, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we're in a new dimension because of the way these constellations have merged with each other. It's all about these unseen forces. So we see over the course of the film, every character kind of looking for those answers. And the movie does, as I said, give us a series of clues that I thought was going to lead us onto a path of enlightenment. And it ends up being, play on words here, Josh, it ends up being a red herring. And not just a few red herrings, the whole movie is a series of red herrings. And that's frustrating at times, but it's mostly fun. And we can agree it's not out of laziness. It is definitely by design. No way. I mean, there's nothing lazy about this film. I mean, it is, if anything, almost over-directed, although it does, you know, also have some really stylish sequences to it. There's, There's even embedded in this a little, like, 12-minute morality play, too, when you're talking about the human nature element. And after one of the members has committed an awful act, um, the others set up an instant tribunal of sorts and decide what punishment, what does justice look like here? Who's going to enact it? Who's going to carry it out? Um, And that was kind of fascinating, even though it too – in some ways comes out of left field and just gets plopped in. And it does. this is what the movie is going to be for this portion. And then it'll go on to be something else. And I think maybe the reason I got fatigued a little bit in terms of not even trying to figure it out, but just keeping up with the movie is it does get uglier. These people get uglier and uglier yes. as it goes on. Um, and that, that tribunal is set up after they discover a rape, which is pretty brutal. Really hard to like, watch. And like depicted multiple times from second week in a row. In yeah, this we didn't get We've into that with, that. I know, we didn't get into that with uh, Let the Bullets Fly. There's an unfortunate sequ- rape sequence there too. But um, yeah, it's, it just really got ugly and I did not hook myself on. Um, I think there are two characters who we are supposed to care for possibly more than the others. They get a little um, bit more screen time. A little more screen time, a little more backstory. We hear about the people they're missing. Mm-hmm. And I guess that wasn't quite – I couldn't quite latch on to them enough to make me, as things got really nasty, to carry me through those portions, I yes. guess. Now, where maybe that 
star chamber sequence where they all play judge and jury there and executioner and that sequence where it doesn't feel totally plopped in out of nowhere is that part of as i said seeking explanations looking for meaning is to also assign blame and we see that throughout the entire film and this is where there are going to be some parallels back to parasite a little bit too among others including we're talking about two films this week that both involve scenes where characters decipher something in Morse code. Yeah. When was the last time you saw any movie that <laughs> talked about Morse code? And we're talking about two such movies this week on the show. But early on, they encounter the junkie on the bus, the guy who gets on clearly in a drug-induced haze, and he's the first guy they all want to get rid of and that they blame for this going wrong. Somehow just this this lower-on-the-totem-pole yeah. member of society mm-hmm. must have caused them some kind of harm. And then this is where it starts to get really interesting and complicated and nonsensical in a way as well in terms of the politics, the international politics. They start blaming Korea, and there's lines about Korea blaming Hong Kong for stealing their culture and Japan gets involved and then they blame China. And then there's the sequence you talked about, the rape sequence where they blame the criminals. Mm-hmm. They blame the two among them that they decide who are criminals. And then it almost becomes something like out of the crucible where they're like the witches that they got to punish yeah. in order to save themselves. This one in particular that they determine is the worst of the two criminals, the one who actually did commit the rape. And it does pose a question that we have to wrestle with, which is he certainly deserves to be punished, but is what he gets, in fact, justice? And even more than that, what should that justice look like when you have a character like the one who is kind of the nerd of the group, the guy who makes apps for a living and is always looking for those answers when he has to dole out his punishment, he just stabs him in the shoulder, Yeah, you know, which seems like there's some kind of allegory there. but. In his mind, that somehow mitigates his own culpability and mitigates his guilt. And at the same time, he can claim to be one of the people who did, quote unquote, the right thing there. It's interesting, too, in that sequence that Fruit Chan shoots it where it's almost exclusively a shot reverse shot between the gang who's looking at him and someone moving forward to stab him and the camera is in the point of view of yeah. the man being stabbed. The, vic- the so, victim in this case. Exactly. Yeah. So that we're seeing from the victim's point of view as he's being accused and also being attacked. And then later, the guy who they felt was the lesser of the two criminals, they turn on him when the other guy's gone and they can't punish him anymore. So again, there's this idea that somehow if they sacrifice these bad guys, well, then maybe they'll all get out of this okay. And there is something fun about the way Fruit Chan explores all the different ways characters can make choices, good and mostly bad choices in this film. And it ties in with this whole idea, right, of choice in terms of the handover and what power the people really did have democratically or not. Choice is really at the core of this film. How much of it is choice versus maybe being predetermined? And there's something then that I can't really totally articulate. I'm going to provide that context and hope that it somehow explains why I love so much the scene where they send one of the women to go back in this restaurant to get a knife. To, to give to someone to arm, and there's three knives. Yeah, that's, there's, that's a good comic right? moment. It's where... a great comic moment because there's three knives. One's too small. Yeah, it's a, Goldi- it's a Goldilocks, it's a totally right? Goldilocks moment. One, one's way too small. One's probably just the right size, and one's way too big. And the one that's too small, she ignores. The one that's just the right size is stuck, stuck and she can't pick it up. Block. So she ends up with the huge <laughs> one. And then when she goes back and she has to get another knife, mm-hmm. that one's now out of the picture, she still can't get the right knife 
for the job. So there is certainly something to that commentary there in terms of this idea of choice. And there's also something to each of these characters being chosen, it seems to me, to represent a certain specific demographic yes. of Hong Kong society. So the the villains, those those two, the criminals essentially, are younger. Their their teens are a little bit older than that, and so they seem to represent some this one segment. Then you have this soccer loving couple. Um, something is being said there about uh, them being so into this sports culture and loving soccer. And there is, as you mentioned, the the younger guy who's also the tech entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And that's another area where I could see like each person is something is being said by the choice for this representative person in society. And if those if I could connect those dots, I'd be probably pulling a lot more out of the film. Yeah, maybe so. Now, I do want to pat myself on the back for feeling incredibly hip because I got the David Bowie reference from the lyrics before the movie told us what it was. Did you? I started to piece it together Sarah was even there, so she can vouch for me. Yeah. I know you don't trust me, Josh, but there's no, a moment what, where they're what, deciphering the Morse code yeah, in the yeah. message, and they're saying these certain lines, and it started it started resonating. I started remembering. I was you like, mean oh, that I you know knew these it was words. a Bowie song? I knew it was a Bowie song. Oh, yeah, I knew yeah. it was Major yeah. Tom, right? Right. And so, okay, so maybe I'm not that special, but I knew it was Major I think Tom. That's the, I think that's the one point most Western viewers will be like, oh. <laughs> oh, I get that. <laughs> I know what's going where on Where you're here. actually ahead of the <laughs> yes, characters, yes. most of them. Anyway, but that's a scene that Aaron Teachman, who I referenced earlier, really loves in the movie. He says that kind of unlocks the whole film for him. And I want to read this part. He says, that performance shakes loose a series of moments of honesty, regret, and personal clarity in several characters as they explain how they each ended up on that minibus. The emotional work that performance unlocks in the character starts to reframe the movie into the existential territory of extended metaphor that is profoundly grounded and relatable, despite all the narrative chaos and confusion. And Aaron also touches on this moment at the end of the film where we see characters have kind of a series of epiphanies and kind of maybe emotional moments of of some kind of catharsis or breakthrough. And I have to be honest, I didn't have that same the very moment, final the seconds. very end yeah, of this film. Yeah. I didn't have the same connection there to the characters and what they were going through. It didn't have that emotional impact that it did have on Aaron, but there is a moment in the film that did strike me in that way, and it's pretty early into the film. It's where it hasn't gotten too crazy yet. They're just trying to piece this together as they've gone through the tunnel. And up to this point, we should say the first 20 minutes of this film are super fast paced, lots of quick cutting, all handheld. And we see people jumping on the bus and jumping off and all, yeah. the, all the cutting between all these different characters and they cross paths. Yeah, that's really, I, Aaron's comment made me think of that. That opening is really expertly done. It it's is. like a sliding doors it where is. we see how they each ended up on this bus. Yes. And I love the fact that the way it's shot suggests to us undeniably how linked we all are as people, how they are actually crossing paths with each other and connected in some way and how utterly disconnected they yeah. are. None of them are aware of it. All these people on all these streets, traveling right by each other, oblivious to those experiences the other people are having. So that really works. And then what does it do in the moment where they all decide, we really need to just go on with our lives as they're trying to make sense of this, and they're going to get off the bus and someone suggests that they should at least exchange phone numbers, mm -hmm. right? And this is the first point in the movie, really, where the camera slows down. I think it's actually all one take on the bus. It's a single take. There's no quick cutting, and it goes from person to person as they each give their name and their phone number and says a little bit about themselves. And 
I found that very moving after everything that had brought us to that point. The fact that they revealed something of themselves to each other, the fact that Fruit Chan covered it in the way he did to kind of bring everything down to a halt and have us really pay attention to the characters in the moment. It was really, really effective. But this is where there's another tie back to Parasite and the class distinction that comes up in this film. And what you said about understanding the different strata of all these characters, what happens at the end of that sequence after that wonderful touching moment where they've all shared something and it's kind of intimate, it then ends up on the bus driver and he says, nobody asked me my name. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it makes sense, right? Yeah. We kind of get it. He's just he's, the bus driver. Well, and he's even, not even thought of it. He's considered part of the bus, essentially. He's considered part of the bus. Yeah. That's it. He's, he's not human like the rest of them, even though they might be, and they all know this at this point, they don't get it, but they might be the last 17 people on the planet. They haven't fully accepted the bus driver yeah. as one of them. Yeah, no, you're right. That That's a very telling moment. And there's a sense, you know, thinking about you're describing those final few moments, that's where the purgatory idea really does come back because of the way that is filmed, they're looking, some of them are looking at out the back of the bus and they kind of just proceed up towards the mountain as if they're disappearing out. It, it's almost like a death scene. Mm -hmm. Like they have really been in purgatory this whole time. Yeah. And now they are moving on. Everyone else, everyone else has moved on already. Now it's their turn. Do you have any other insights, Josh? I, I haven't had any yet. <laughs> <laughs> Any other random comments, I no. suppose, before we go ahead and wrap this up? I think I'm going to stop while I'm ahead as well. We would love to hear from some of you out there who have seen this film, maybe adore it as much as Aaron and Sean do. Maybe you caught up with it for the first time and had a strong reaction to it. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. If you are just starting with this marathon and have some homework to do, that's fine. You can find the full lineup at filmspotting.net slash marathons. That is also where you can find our complete archive of film spotting marathons. I should know the number by now, but this is something like our 40th marathon since 2005 here on film spotting. So there's a lot to dive into if you are so inclined. Next up, the third movie in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon, it's Anways. Our time will come from 2017. It's set in Japanese-occupied Hong Kong. And then we'll close out the marathon with a movie from this year, Zha Zhanka's Ash is Purest White. All those titles are available on demand. We do encourage you to check out your local library as well. Do not forget about Interlibrary Loan. And you know what? Don't forget about if you're lucky enough to live in a city that has one of these, your local video store. Yeah. They do still there exist. There are still video stores. And we heard from a listener here in Chicago, Andrew Dykstra. He's in Logan Square, and he wrote in with this tip. I thought it was worth sharing. As somewhat of an aside, there's a Chicago establishment I wonder if you guys could raise a little awareness for. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that the Odd Obsession Video Rental Store is one of my top three favorite places in Chicago. It not only represents and fuels the love of film, it more importantly sustains the access to it. I've been more convinced as time and technology move forward, any loss of access to physical media, discs, and tapes will ultimately lead to the complete loss of those movies that never graduate past their current iteration into a digital or streaming form. Odd Obsession is one of a dying breed of resources, keeping a huge range of rare movies not available on any streaming sites or even Netflix disc coffers obtainable for the public to rent and share with others. The last several years of my annual horror marathons would not have been close to their quality if Odd Obsession wasn't there for me to draw from. And now the store is on the brink of extinction. 
their fundraiser comes to a close at the end of the month, at which point they'll host one last event to raise enough money to save the Watchtower to borrow some Back to the Future parlance. Thanks for the patience with the lengthy email and the consideration with the odd obsession plug. Been a huge fan of the show since the Matty Ball game days. Thanks for all you guys do. Thank you, Andrew, for that note and that reminder of a great place like Odd Obsession here in Chicago. We will link to that Indiegogo page in our show notes at filmspotting.net if you are interested in donating. I did think about calling them today, Josh, just to check. Is it possible that you've got some of the films that are in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon lineup? But even if they don't, I'm sure there are a lot of other great films to choose from, including a lot of other past marathon titles. Again, more information available at filmspotting.net. Josh, that's our show. Indeed it is. If you want to find more, more marathons, more reviews, more interviews, or top fives going all the way back to 2005, visit filmspotting.net. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll there. We're asking, what's your favorite Martin Scorsese film? And we've got about five options for you to choose from. To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. To subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, filmspotting.net slash newsletter is the place to go. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Out in wide release this weekend, Black and Blue, Naomi Harris stars as a rookie cop who accidentally captures an incident of police corruption on her body cam. Can she make it back to the station before it's too late? Also, Countdown, an app tells you the exact moment of your death. Well, I don't need to see that, Josh. The Current War, Edison versus Westinghouse with Benedict Cumberbatch and Michael Shannon also out in limited release, including right here in Chicago. Western Stars, this is the Bruce Springsteen concert doc. I've seen the trailer, very curious to see the movie. Jojo Rabbit also out from Taika Waititi and The Lighthouse from The Witch director Robert Eggers. It's going to be The Lighthouse or Jojo Rabbit next week. It probably has to be The Lighthouse, but we will see which one we make it to. And yes, we will get to the third movie in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. It's Our Time Will Come. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ. WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by King Grizzard and the Lizard Wizard. It comes from the new album Infest the Rat's Nest. More information at KingGrizzard and the LizardWizard.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. Is that a real thing? I mean, it was, seemed like it was fun to say. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.